Well, Christ is our hope in life and in death, and I feel like that's such an important thing for us to sing about and to remember and to hold on to, uh, especially as we enter into this, this new year. And let's face it, I'm just glad that my family and I were back. We've been gone for a few uh, weeks out and just on some vacation, and we always love coming home. Uh, not everybody can say that, okay? Just want to... You know, I, I have friends in ministry, and sometimes they're going, you know, it's time to go back, you know. <laughs> and we're, we're like, we get to go home to our church family, you know. And we're, we're thrilled uh, that we get to um, embark on this new year together. Uh, if you're on our, 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 our email list, you, you got an update on this. And if you've been with us for the past few months, you're aware of this. But if you're not, I want to bring you in. We're, we're involved in a, a project right now where we're trying to expand uh, that portion of our building. So if you look through that window, you can see a building. That's the original building where we first met in, in, in 1966. Um, and, uh, well, we want to expand that out because we want to open up our campus so that more people can join together with us. Um, we are not really set up right now to help folks who are maybe confined to a wheelchair or have mobility issues. Uh, it's challenging. And so we want to make sure we can invite everybody in. And so in light of that, We've started what we've called, we've called the, the, the Access for All project, and we've been giving towards that and, and taking commitments uh, and giving commitments towards that over, over a three-year time period. We're committing to give a certain amount of, over and above our regular giving to try to make this happen. So uh, this past week, if, like I mentioned, if you're on the email list, you got the word that we we're up to now $468,000, and, uh, and that's we started in, in November. So praise God. That's, that's a good amount. It's a good amount. We're grateful. Uh, we thank the Lord for that. We thank you for, for your commitment and, and your gifts in doing that. Our goal is $900,000 in commitments uh, and in giving. And so we're, we're, we're not there yet. Uh, we're looking towards that. I also need to let you know that my understanding is since I gave that update, uh, there have been several more uh, commitments uh, brought in. So I don't have a final number for you. But I, I wanted to bring it to your attention because uh, as God's faithfully provided and as you have stepped up to give, uh, really, we're in that season now where our, our leadership is going to be entering into a, some discussion on, on what are next steps. You know, how do we proceed? And, and we need wisdom for that. These are exciting days. God's leading us, and yet uh, we want to be in tune with the Lord. You know, this is his church. It's not ours. Uh, he died for her. She's his bride. She will share him with no one. And so we, we want to make sure we're in tune with him as we move ahead. And so we're, we're praying, and we're asking you, our church family to pray for, for leadership through this as well because we want more than anything for God to be honored. Uh, and if you're wondering how you can be praying, uh, many of you back in November when we kicked this off received a, a prayer card and hopefully you've put that in a prominent place and you can refer back to that and continue to pray. And, uh, and if you don't have one or you want another one, there's plenty of them in the foyer area. You can just grab it on your way out. Uh, but let's go before the Lord now in prayer and just ask God to guide and lead. Um, Lord, we thank you again for the opportunity to gather as your people. Uh, we thank you that Clayton Valley Church is your church, um, that, that you're the one that has uh, blessed her over the many decades of ministry of being a faithful gospel witness here in this community. And so we would pray, Lord, that, that you would be glorified as we seek you uh, in, in terms of uh, next steps with, with this plan to, to allow more access for more people and so we pray you'd guide us in that. Please keep us in unity as a church as we walk through this project. And thank you that you have done that. We look to you to continue doing that. We pray that each person involved from leading to helping would serve you with wisdom and clarity and joy from you. Uh, we would pray that, that each of us would be wise and generous and joyful stewards of, of all the resources that you've entrusted to us. We ask that we would be a blessing and a witness to everyone who, who gets involved in this uh, project, uh, many of whom will be those who don't know you yet. And so for the men and women who will serve in, in various places, from contractors to inspectors to laborers to engineers to others, uh, we ask that we'd be a witness to them. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would provide over and above our needs from skills to logistics, to materials, to finances. And most of all, Lord, we would ask that the outcome of this project would glorify you in every way because that's our desire, Lord. We want to reflect you to others and we want to give you pleasure in everything that we do. And so we look to you now and we give you thanks in advance for how you will lead us, Lord. And, uh, and we pray for our, our leadership now as they enter this, this new season that you'd grace them. To, to be able to choose between good and better and best 
and that in, with the outcome, you would be greatly glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've uh, ever had to enter into a, uh, um, a, a driver's training class of any kind before. Uh, maybe, you've, maybe you got a ticket. It's possible. Uh, or maybe you're just, you know, you've taken one of those classes because, uh, you know, you want to get your insurance rates down. If you're a young person, I know a lot of our teens uh, who are driving uh, have recently, I know some in particular, have recently taken courses so that that crazy insurance number goes down. And, uh, and that's good. But if, if you go into the defensive driving portion of that curriculum, typically they're going to give you a, several scenarios. And one of those scenarios is going to be this. You're stopped at a stop sign. You look in the rearview mirror and you see a car careening towards you and you realize it's going to rear-end you. What should you do? And do you know what most people do in answer to that question as they did a poll on this? Most people answer in this way. You should keep your foot off the brake so that when the car hits you, you'll go forward absorbing some of the shock. That is the wrong answer. Don't do that. Why? Because what happens is now your car is kind of just free-floating. You get hit. You're getting the jolt. You're getting the whiplash. No, instead, what you're supposed to do, and instructors will say this, put your brake on as tight as you can. Brace yourself for the collision. If your car is rigid and braced, it's on a foundation. In other words, when that horizontal pressure hits, it's not going to be as much damage to you inside the car because there's something rigid protecting you. You're more anchored to the ground. And if your car is braked, you will protect yourself from that whiplash effect. Now, it's counterintuitive, but it's the best response. I mean, think about that in life, too. You know, there's horizontal pressures that you and I face all the time. They're coming at us. And, you know, as we enter into a new year here, I, 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 I want to, I don't know if you're like, dude, it was two weeks ago. Okay, I wasn't here, all right? So this is the new year for me, folks. Deal with it, okay? So, uh, but as we enter it, we're still embarking on a new year. As we get into this, the, those horizontal pressures are, 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 are piling in. And for many of us, I'm just looking around this room, and, and we've got folks here. Some are dealing with really serious health problems. Others are facing financial crises. Others have friends and family who are dealing with problems that they don't know how to help them with. Some are friends and family from far away. They can't even get to them. Uh, for others, it's close by. But the point is, we have all kinds of different pressures that we face. And the question is, what do we do with them? And are we really anchored into the rock, that solid foundation in God, his faithfulness, his love? Because when we do that, then we can better handle those horizontal pressures. But tragically, we don't. We turn to other things. It's so easy to do, isn't it? And we find ourselves getting racked with anxiety because rather than resting in him, we're trying to have our own solution. We've got a way we're going to get ourselves out of this thing or we've got another way we can deal with it. Sometimes we turn to sin. We think sin's actually going to solve the problem. You know, someone's someone's lonely and they're dealing with that whole thing. And so what do they do? They decide, well, forget all God's principles of relationships. I'm just going to be with this person because, well, frankly, they have a pulse. And that's better than nothing. When in fact, God has a plan. It's hard. Loneliness is very challenging. That's a hard trial. For others, it might be a financial thing. It's like, you know what? If I cut corners here in my business, if I just, just kind of tweak this here and do that there, I know it's wrong, but eh, I could probably get away with it and we'll do better. Maybe, maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe it's uh, in, in your endeavors as, as a student, as a young person. You know, that exam's coming up. You wanted to study for it. You really did, but... Time kind of got away from you, and oh yeah, there's a study guide available online. Or better yet, these days you can just have some AI write your paper for you. Why not? It's not really cheating. <laughs> whatever it is, wherever you're at, whatever form of pressure you're under, finances, health, future direction, whatever it would be, the question is, are we actually turning to the one? who can carry us, the one who has actually even allowed these things into our lives for the purpose of drawing us closer to him. David faced a lot of pressure in his life. And there was a time where he was actually being chased by King Saul. He was being chased because he uh, was a more capable warrior than Saul. And and there was a, a hit song that came out in ancient Israel. You know, 
Saul slayed his thousands. David slayed his ten thousands. It was one of the, it made the top 40 back in the day. People were singing that song, and Saul got mad. And David found himself on the run. David was a refugee. David was having his life hunted down by the one who he ought to be able to go to for protection. If, if you were under that kind of duress, where would you typically go? Your leader, your king. But in his case, he couldn't go to the king because that was the one trying to kill him. So he ran. And in the midst of that, he composed songs. And many of those songs were captured and many of those songs were then sung by God's people in worship which you got to love, right? Wait, that song came out of that kind of circumstance? Yeah. And when God's people gathered, they sang it? Yeah. Huh. It's a wide diversity of types of songs God's people can sing when together, including those dealing with real problems, real issues. So we find that especially in a beautiful place, Psalm 16. I would encourage you to open to that. And uh, if you're using the, the Bible on the chair rack in front of you, you can find it on page 397 in the Old Testament. So when you open the Bible, it's going to be toward the left, the left portion, page 397 in the Old Testament. And, and, and this is really a beautiful portrait painted of someone resting deep in God's protection, especially in a time of pressure. And so uh, it's our practice to, in honor of God's word, to receive it and to really remind ourselves of who's speaking as we read it, to, to stand. So would you please stand and follow along as I read? Psalm 16. A mictam of David. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we ask that in this time that we're gathered together, this, this short time, that your spirit would do mighty things within our hearts. We thank you that he penned these very words in order to transform us. And we pray that we would listen in that way, that you would help us to be on the edge of our seats to hear what you would say to us, that we would grow in resting deep in your protection, especially in times of pressure. Grace us to see these things, to apply them, that, that the week ahead and even the, the days ahead would be saturated with this kind of deep rest in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. The psalm opens with a, a declaration of a mictum of David, and you're going, well, what, what is that? It's an interesting word. Um, it, it actually resembles a term in Hebrew, which means to cover. And, and so cover, concealment, secrecy, and so it seems like perhaps if David is in fact a refugee, if he's hiding from his enemy Saul, and then uh, that would make actually a, a lot of sense in terms of the kind of, of, of psalm this is. Uh, in the face of unjust persecution, where does one turn? Where does one go? And certainly here we find David turning to the Lord, 
And that's what to, to, to take refuge actually means that as well. So, so we kind of see it's a victim of David, and he's declaring in verse 1, I'm, I'm taking refuge in you. So, so we really find here um, that when we rest deep in God's protection, the very first thing we would see is that when we do that, we will run to God as our refuge. And that, you might go, well, that sounds pretty obvious. Okay, if it does sound so obvious, why don't we do it? Why do we so easily turn to other things? Uh, a, a refuge. He, he, he's taking shelter. Uh, maybe today, you know, we absolutely see this. You know, I was telling someone downstairs this morning, I'm like, hey, isn't this a beautiful day? And they looked at me like, yeah, it actually is. You know, it's pretty, it's raining. And I go, yeah, but you remember when we had to meet outside? Look up. We're inside. This is beautiful. Uh, we get to gather together like this and we can hear at times, different times, the pitter-patter of the rain. Sometimes it's more than a pitter-patter. Sometimes it's like, sounds like slugging of the rain, right? But the point is, here we are. We're, this, is a, this, is a, this is a refuge. We're underneath the shelter. And that's what God is. And David sees that. And so David's saying, preserve me, oh God. That's, that's, that's sort of a plea. Lord, please preserve me. I'm in trouble. I'm getting hammered here. I'm getting slammed. I'm feeling the pressure. Preserve me because I take refuge in you. That's where I go. Um, the word is used in many places in the Old Testament. It, it talks about people who are f- fugitives because of war. They're running. Uh, a, lot, a lot of times it stresses the fact that the person seeking refuge is defenseless. They cannot help themselves. They're unable to take care of the situation or, or with the pressure they're under. And I think for, for many of us, especially in our culture, a lot of times the thing that we're hearing over and over and over again is, hey, you can do it. You know, people, people are reading tons of books it's a huge industry, right? The, the self-help industry. And that's the whole thing. It's about self-help. And the Bible tells us, and maybe you're here today and you're just kind of exploring these things for the first time. The, the Bible is telling us very clearly here that you cannot help yourself. You can't. You can't help but yourself by, by embracing some sort of techniques from, from whoever this you know, particular expert is who's selling you those books. Um, you can't help yourself by becoming religious, Religion cannot help you. Going to church and checking off the boxes of doing the right moral thing, that can't help you either. Because in all of those things, we've got a very, very deep problem. That problem is sin. Even in our, in our most noble moments, whatever the standard is that we put up for ourselves, we violate that standard. And so the Bible tells us that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But, God, but then we're given hope in Jesus himself. Because we're told that the Lord, God, he himself came down. We just celebrated it at Christmas. He came down and entered into our mess. He entered into our mess for the purpose of rescuing helpless people. And so the call to you today would be this. Run to him for refuge, for safety, for shelter. Because you can't do it on your own. You can't. You can't rescue yourself from sin. And sin is the thing that separates all of us from God. God is coming back. There's a day of judgment coming. And people will stand before God and they will either answer for their own sins before him or they will take shelter under Christ who died in our place. He lived the life we couldn't live and then died the very death that we deserved. He rose again from the dead demonstrating that God received payment in full for our sin. And so the key today is trust him, run to him. And you're going to hear that repeatedly throughout this psalm. Um, but, but, but for those of us who have come to Christ and we're trusting in him, the reality is we struggle with this. And, and you might be thinking, yeah, we're supposed to run to the Lord for safety. And, and again, if you're, you're a person who's walked with Jesus for a while, you're going, yeah, Chris, that sounds great, but how do I do that? When I'm in the middle of, of that pressure, when the temptation is hitting me, when I feel doubt, when I feel fear, there are times, when I'm really being honest, that I do not run to God. So how can I do that? Well, thankfully, the, the passage, this psalm tells us how. And, and we find... 
that we're really going to run to God for refuge, we'll really do that when this next thing is really true in our lives, when we realize that God is our only good. When we actually realize that God is, notice, our only good. You can see that in in verse two very clearly. Look what he says. "I, I said to the Lord... You are my Lord. It's interesting. It's a word play there. The first word there is Yahweh. So he's the covenant-keeping God, the God who says, I am with you to Moses. You are my Lord. You are my king. In other words, you are the one that's, that rules. And that, look what he says at the end of verse 2. I have a little bit of good besides you. No, it doesn't say that. He says, I have no good besides you. There isn't any good in my life, apart from you. And you might think, wow, he must be just kind of poetically exaggerating things there. No, he's not. What's the word good? It has this beautiful depiction of things that are valuable or, or things that are, are beautiful or things that are very, very pure. The, 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 the quality of craftsmanship in the tabernacle, this term was used. The gold that was sought from this place called Havalia, back in Genesis 2, this term is used. Um, there's a, a, a goodness that is describing the beauty of Rebecca. So as, as she's seen, people are like, oh, she's beautiful. That's good. There's the um, moral goodness that's used, encompassed in this term. There's this idea of someone doing the right, what's right and good before God. Uh, there's also this idea of, of goodness connected with happiness or being blessed. Blessed are those who, we've heard that phrase before from Jesus' lips. He gets them from Psalm 1 and other places where this idea of happiness, of a royal wedding or a happy feast, those things are described as a good day. That same term is used there. And so David's saying kind of this all-encompassing term of what's good. He's saying there's none of it anywhere in any way, shape, or form except Yahweh himself. And the question we, I think we need to ask is, do, do, I, do I really believe that? Do I really believe that? If I really believe that God was my only good, how would that look in my daily life? There's so many times where we try to find good elsewhere. We grab after good in other places, a perceived good. A young woman thinks she's going to find love and security if she gives in to her boyfriend. What's she doing? She's looking for a good thing, namely love and security, but she's doing it apart from God's design and God's will. You know, there's a, a man who is lonely, and so he indulges in pornography maybe or in, or in some sort of office romance. He's looking for a good thing, connection with another person. But he's looking for it apart from God and his design. God's plan, God's way is through monogamous heterosexual marriage. And so he's going apart from him saying, no, I have a good elsewhere. It's here. I'm going to manufacture it for myself. There might be someone who just has to be up on the latest gossip because they make themselves feel significant. They think they're more important if they're kind of in the know. What are they doing? Well, again, they, they, they want to feel like they matter and so that's a good to them and, and what they're doing is they're going to manufacture it now and, 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 and do it apart from or outside of God's design. There's so many ways it happens. But bottom line is, when we dig down into our sin, when we go underneath there and go, what are we really doing in those moments? We are trying to achieve good apart from God and apart from his ways. That good thing might be pleasure. That's a gift from God, by the way. I still love the screw tape letters, if you haven't read those, by C.S. Lewis. Um, It's about this wormwood who's kind of an upper echelon demon. And... uh, Oh no, Wormwood is the nephew, I think. So Screwtape is the upper echelon demon, right? So Screwtape is writing to his little nephew, his nephew Wormwood, about how to tempt or keep the patient away from Jesus. But one thing he writes is uh, in the middle of those letters, and, and again, it's you know C.S. Lewis's fiction at its, at its best. He writes from a from the demon standpoint. He's like, you know, we 
have done our best, but we have not been able to invent one pleasure. Our researchers have been at it. We've been going after it for a long time, but we cannot invent one pleasure. All we can do is take the pleasures that the enemy, God, has given and pervert them. But we can't actually invent a pleasure on our own. And so that's what's happening with sin. When we're seeking good apart from God, we're actually really oftentimes after something that might be good. It might be a good thing that God's even given. But we're seeking it in another way apart from his design. And you know what the result is? Not only do we sin, not only do we pervert what God has given, but whatever it is we are after, I can guarantee you this, ultimately you're not getting that. That's a part of the, of the enemy's plan. Ever increasing desire for pleasure, ever more clamoring after it apart from God's will, ever decreasing experience of pleasure. You name any addiction on the planet, that is the pattern. There's a reason for that. That's part of the design of the deception. No, God alone is our good. He himself personally is our good. And so what happens is when, we, when this good thing becomes that what we're after apart from God's design, security, significance, a physical need, ultimately, as we've said many times if you've been with us for a while, it's some form of idolatry. We're worshiping an idol. And when we start serving someone or something other than God, to satisfy our needs or desires, we dishonor God, we sin, and we forfeit actual, real satisfaction. The, the reformer John Calvin, he put it this way when he said, it will not suffice to simply hold that there is one whom all ought to honor and adore, namely God, unless we are also persuaded that he is the fountain of every good and that we must seek nothing elsewhere than in him. The reason to not seek good anywhere else isn't simply because it's wrong. The reason to not seek good anywhere else is because there is no good anywhere else. It doesn't exist. You can't find it there, whatever that other place is. You can only find it in him. But when we don't, we find ourselves in this place of idolatry and, and uh, that's described in verses, verses four, three and four, it gives a contrast. There's the saints who are in the earth. Those are people who are following after God. And the psalmist says, hey, I delight in them. You'll notice that. They're the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. So the idea would be there's fellowship. There's a desire to be amongst God's people, with God's people. There's a value of, of God's people gathered. There's all these different things that were happening in the Old Testament that has continued on into uh, the new. It's a pattern of God's people gathering, praising him. They are a community. Uh, we're, we're told that, that uh, w in the New Testament that we are actually a kingdom of priests, called out by God to gather as his people and to live uh, unto, unto him for his glory as a witness to a dying world. But notice what the contrast is in verse 4. Or you can seek good elsewhere. And what comes, verse 4? The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. That word barter is so interesting because it has the idea of acting quickly. So it's a hasty action, but it also is related to the word that means to acquire by paying a purchase price. And ultimately, that is the word that's actually used for wedding money. So the dowry. So you see all these things encompassed in this one term, this idea of you're acting quickly, you're going to destruction, you're acquiring something by a purchase price, and there's in some way a connection, almost like you're becoming united with another God. That's very consistent with how God describes his relationship with his people. It's not simply legal. It's not a business arrangement. No, it's oftentimes used in the context of a marital covenant. And so this idea of bartering after another God, rash decisions, acquiring something by paying it out, a purchase price, a dowry, becoming one with something that is not your true husband. Spiritual idolatry is spiritual adultery. 
So we need to see very clearly that we are not running after God oftentimes because we don't realize God is our only good. There's another thing we're going to have to actually do in order to run to God. And that is this. We need to recognize God as our portion. So we, we realize that God is our only good, but we also need to recognize God as our portion. That's in verse 5. The portion of my inheritance and my cup is what he says. And he says, Yahweh, you are that. It's not simply, Yahweh, you give me that. It's like, Yahweh, you actually are that. You are my portion. Why is that so significant here? Well, David goes on to say, hey, look, I have a heritage. I, I am blessed with knowing God. Uh, the lines have fallen to me in, heaven, in, in pleasant places, he says in verse 6. Uh, those lines, literally, in Old Testament times, it was rope. And those ropes were used to mark off various sections of the land that were given to God's people as an inheritance. So you, you would have, the, that's why there were other commands in the Old Testament. You might recall if you've read there, you know, don't move the bar- boundary marker idea. Sometimes it would be stones. But then eventually they would take ropes and, and lay them out. And like, this is the property line. This is yours. This is yours. But think about what David's in right now. What, what is the position of David? He's fleeing. He's on the run. He doesn't have anything. He's a refugee. That's part of being a refugee. You don't have a place that's yours. And yet he is saying here, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. How can he possibly say that? Well, the answer is clear. Verse 5, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance. He's saying, I'm on the run for my, I'm, on, I'm running for my life. I'm, I'm being chased. And yet I have a portion. I have an inheritance. Those boundary lines for me have been put actually in pleasant places because, Lord, you are my portion. It's interesting that earlier in, in the, the, the Old Testament, we find that the priests, the Levitical priests, were told they did not have a land inheritance. Because God himself was their portion, was their, their, their inheritance. That's what they had. And so very likely David's going, hey, I'm on the run, and yet, God, you are my portion, very much like the priests. You're mine, I'm yours. And you can see the Psalms say that in other places. David's even written that in other places. In Psalm 27, 4, he says, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. He's saying, Lord, I want you, one thing, just one thing, and it's you. In Psalm 73, he says this, or Asaph actually writes this, a different psalmist. He says, who have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So that portion, that, that, that inheritance, we find here that David sees that the greatest blessing God can possibly give is God himself. The greatest blessing he could ever receive is God himself. And without him, no other blessing has any meaning at all doesn't mean we don't enjoy those other blessings. They are to be enjoyed. We, we, we're told in Scripture there are many things to give thanks to God for. You know, he made this world. He, he, he made, even in its fallen state, it's still beautiful. We're, we're, we're told to enjoy God's gifts. We enjoy food. We enjoy family, friends. We enjoy various things. God's given us the arts. He's made us creative. We're actually following after our creator as we engage in those things. Those are all beautiful gifts from God. But without God himself. They're meaningless. Let me ask you a question. If God gave you health but didn't give you himself, would you be satisfied? If God gave you a nice home, nice vacations, if you had more money than you needed but you did not have him, would you be satisfied?
picture maybe you know going to heaven and, and there you are you're you're there in that place of of bliss the, the air is clean and bright maybe it's the new heavens and new earth so you know Jesus has already returned and here you are there's no more sin there's no more strife there's no more arguing there's no more conflict there's no more death but Jesus is not there would you be satisfied We find here that God himself is the one who gives everything and yet without him none of his blessings are actually fully enjoyable at all. God's forgiven us of our sin in Jesus for all who have turned to him. And and why is that good news? It's good news to have our sins forgiven. Yes, But the real good news is that because of that, we now can have relationship with him. We get to know him. Not academically merely. It's it's, it's personal knowledge. It's, It's a relationship. Because of what Jesus has done, we actually have access to the Father. We have eternal life. And that means we're enjoying his presence forever. And so so David here is not focused merely on God's gifts. No, David is focused on the fact that God himself is the greatest gift. And the only gift that makes anything else matter at all. Do we see that? especially as you face pressure. This idea of of the portion, the boundary lines, the inheritance, God's presence, all of these things are there to, to tell us that as God blesses and as God gives, we give thanks to him. But if it comes to us and he isn't the main thing, really the only thing, then we are missing out. So we're really going to rest deeply in God's protection. We really, when we run to God as our refuge, when we actually realize that he's our only good, when we recognize God as our portion, and then lastly, when we respond to God in worship. And you might be going, what worship? You mean like, so we're going to run to for refuge if we, like, if we sing to him? And, and yeah, absolutely. Singing, singing is a big part of that. Sure. It's an important form of worship. Certainly this psalm was sung to God. But the Bible also tells us that our entire life is really a life of worship unto him. You know, Romans 12.1 says that we're to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice unto him. And so, how do we worship God? Well, we're told here, look at what he says in verse 7. I will bless you, Lord, who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. And so, what do we find there? We find that we worship God by receiving his instruction. By listening to him. There, there undoubtedly, as you, you almost see David, he's on the run. Maybe he's in a cave and he's laying there and he's praying. He's going, Lord, help me. What am I supposed to do? And God counseled him. God gave him wisdom. He does that with us too. And James, James tells us, if any of you lacks wisdom, what are you supposed to do? Ask God who gives generously. And, and listening to God's wisdom, hearing him, certainly seeking out his truth and applying it to our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit, those are ways in which we worship him. Another way we worship, we find, is by meditating on him. Look at verse 8. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. It's very deliberate. I have set the Lord, how often before me? Continuously. He's, he's taking God, the thought of God, his mind, and going, I'm placing it on you, Lord. I'm deliberately doing that. And, and we've got to do that more. We've got to learn how to do that, especially if we're going to rest deeply in God's protection in times of pressure. Because I think our tendency is to go, well, what am I going to do? 
And that's not a bad question to ask, but then the next response needs to be, Lord, I'm going to set my mind on you first. That's the first thing I'm going to do. I've set the Lord continually before me because, notice, he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Now, that's an interesting phrase because typically you would think it's, no, I'm at his right hand. The right hand would be, you know, God's on the throne and, and we're at his right hand. We're, we're, you know, we want to serve him. Or we're told that Jesus actually is at the right hand of God interceding for us, right? There's that relationship. But here, the idea of the right hand can also have the, the concept of the active hand. That's the one you draw your sword with typically. It's the one that you, and for those who are left-handed, please, I'm not trying to insult you. You're important too, okay? Just typically, people are right-handed. And so they, you know, they pull the sword out, that kind of thing. So having God there, he's the one that gives power. He's the one that enables. He's the one that causes David to be able to act with skill in those situations. Another way we worship God is by simply rejoicing in him. We see that in verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad, my glory rejoices, my flesh will also dwell securely. He's seeing that, yes, there is a physical outcome to God's protection. David literally was kept alive by God. His body, his flesh was, dwelt, did dwell securely. But notice in verse 9, my heart is glad. There's a joy there. And it's not this empty joy. I, a lot of times, in, in our culture especially, there's sort of this thing, I want to feel joy. How do I do that? Well, let's all just all get revved up and pumped up and go, you know? And it's sort of like, whoa, time out. Notice here, it's, it's the truth of who God is. That's what gives joy. It's the content of, of what the gospel would teach us and tell us that's in our minds that causes us to reflect on that and go, wow, praise God, and to rejoice. So, so there's a, an act, it's an act of worship day in, day out, moment in, moment out, to be in that mindset of going, okay, Lord, I'm in you. I'm dwelling securely because of you, not because of what's happening around me, because of who you are, and therefore I'm able to rejoice even in the midst of, of pressure and distress. And finally, we would see we worship God by trusting him absolutely. We find that in verses 10 and 11. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the grave, is what David's saying. Nor will you allow your holy one to undergo decay. And when we hear that, we go, wait a minute. Wait a minute, huh? What's going on there? Well, you know what? That's a reference to the greater son of David, Jesus the Messiah. How do we know that? Well, in, in the book of Acts, um, there was the time when Peter's preaching there. Uh, the church has just been born. And, and he references this psalm and says, Jesus rose from the dead, and that was prophesied centuries before. And he quotes this very psalm and says, This is referring to this greater one, the messianic king who's been promised, who's, by the way, from David's vantage point, Way more righteous than the king that's trying to kill him. David's greater son, the Messiah. And so I love how prophecy does this. You know, it's, it is very much like there's one line. You're like, okay, yeah, that's, that's flowing through the context here and what's happening. And then all of a sudden, almost like a dream, it's like, and then there's this line. <laughs> You're like, what? And then, But that's, that's, that's our hope. That was David's ultimate hope. That's our hope. And now here we are on the other side of that and we're looking back. The reason we gather on the Lord's day, the first day of the week, is because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. That's why God's designated this day for us to rest from our work and to seek our God. And here we find the Holy One Jesus did not undergo decay. And I love how when Peter references this, he goes, by the way, folks, this can't be referring to David. You know why? Because David's buried. And we know that. And his body is decaying. He, he says, we know that. So logically, it cannot possibly refer to David. But most certainly, it refers to his greater son, Jesus. That's our hope. And again, if you've not yet come to trust in that Messiah, the one who came to, to fulfill God's law completely in your place, the one who came to take the penalty that's due to each of us, the one that came to give grace and forgiveness, the one that came to give eternal life to all who would call upon him, today is the day for you to turn to him. Seek him now.
He will not turn away anyone who runs to him for refuge. Verse 11, we find this part of this trusting him absolutely. Notice, you will make known to me the path of life. Uh, When you see the word path there in Hebrew poetry, you know what it's talking about? Daily life. Day in, day out. There's a path of wisdom. There's a path of foolishness. And there's also here the path of life. The path that God sets before us. And when you stay on his path, you know what? Then and only then, you are really, really alive. Truly alive. Walking with him. And then he goes on to describe that. Why? Well, because in your presence, notice it says in the second line there, your presence is fullness of joy. Just being near you, God, being near you, being with you, doesn't just give joy. Being near you gives fullness of joy. It's the idea of joy overflowing. Not containable within the container you have. There's too much. You know, you picture, I, I, for some reason, our family's been on a root beer float, or actually, it's a Dr. Pepper float phase lately. I think we have Dr. Pepper and there's ice cream. You put them together, boom, what do you get? Yeah. But if you ever pour that stuff too fast, what happens, right? You got the ice cream there, you take the Dr. Pepper, you go, boom, what happens? Woof. It's not that bad of a problem, right? You know, you can, you can deal with it. You can deal with it. But that's the picture here of fullness of joy. It is overflowing. It can't be kept in that cup. And then notice this at the end, verse 11. In your right hand are pleasures forever. Now, notice the play on the word right hand before. God is at my right hand. Now it's in your right hand, God. When you are actively doing what you do in that place, there are pleasures forever. This is that moment where we realize we can't let the world try to hijack what God has made. Because that happens a lot. We, th- we think of it in that way sometimes. Yeah, out there, there's allure. There's pleasure. And it's all related to sin. When in fact, that's not actually pleasure. Real pleasure. Full pleasure. No. At God's right hand, there's not just pleasures. There's pleasures forever. Whatever pleasure you enjoy the most at any given time, do you realize that was given to you by God to point you to him because the pleasure in him is greater? All of those different pleasures, think of them. He gave them to us for a reason. We should enjoy them. We're, we're told to give thanks to God for his provisions of those things and to fully enjoy them. But realize this, they're pointing us to him. I go back to what John Piper said years ago, and I think we need to remember this. You know, we want to glorify God with our lives. Yes, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So we're, we're called to worship God, but let's worship him in that way. It's not just something we do gathered together. We do that here. We do. Praise God for that. But throughout our days, let's worship God by receiving his wisdom. Let's, let's worship God by meditating on him. Let's worship God by rejoicing in him. Let's worship God by trusting him absolutely. And let's realize at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. I would encourage you if, you, if you're in a season right now where you're battling temptation a lot, and by the way, that's all of us, in whatever form, you know what? Memorize verse 11. It's not that long. Now, I don't know what, what, what it is you're facing exactly, but just think of whatever that is. Maybe, maybe it's, you know, a situation where just it, it causes you deep angst. Maybe it's a situation where you find yourself responding in an ungodly way. Maybe, maybe there's frustration with people, or maybe there's a way in which you're trying to please people. You're, you're a people pleaser. Whatever I do, I got to make others happy. And so you're kind of like the little puppy dog going, okay, what can I do next? That's, that's just as destructive as being someone who's, you know, out there laying everybody out because you're not getting your way. Maybe you're wrestling with, with, with uh, some sort of sexual temptation. Maybe there's someone else in your life uh, that, that you're idolizing in some ways and, and trying to live for them rather than for God. I don't know, whatever it would be. 
this verse, if we were to actually memorize this and in that moment of temptation pull it out, uh, that's part of the, the deal, right? We're told this is the sword of the Spirit, right? The Word of God. The picture is it's His sword. It's the Spirit's sword. We grab it. We go like this. It's the Holy Spirit's hands who are around our hands, and He's the one guiding us and using it in that moment. But whatever you're facing, if, what, if, this, if you pull this out and said, Lord, you will make known to me the path of life. And your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. What happens in that moment of temptation? Now, please, no, I'm not saying you pull this verse out, temptation's gone. Probably not. Because we know that this is a vicious battle we're in daily against sin. But you pull this verse out into your mind in that moment, you pull that out, you pull the sword out, the Spirit of God's hands are on your hands, you're in the middle of that battle, you know what? It's going to be different. And you say it again, Lord, make known to me the path of life. You will make known to me the path of life. Lord, in your presence is fullness of joy. Lord, in your right hand, our pleasures forever. So I don't have to blow up at that person. I don't have to compromise with sin in this other way. I don't have to try to find life outside of God's plan because in his right hand are pleasures forever. May that be our passion in the week ahead. As we continue to follow him, may we learn to rest deeply in God's protection, especially in times of pressure. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We ask that you would accomplish these things, that you would do above and beyond anything we can ask or think even. As we seek to live out the beauties of who you are and your promises to us. Thank you for being our refuge. Thank you that you really are our only good, that you actually are our portion. And Lord, we ask that we would be those who truly do worship you each and every day, receiving your wisdom, thinking on you repeatedly, rejoicing in who you are and, and trusting you absolutely. Be glorified, we ask in these things in our lives, we pray. Amen.